Welcome to Montrose Podcast, the official podcast of Montrose School here in Medfield, Massachusetts, where girls are called to greatness. I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, and I'm very happy that you can join us. Maybe you're an avid supporter of Montrose, a current parent, or a friend of the school. Or maybe you're new to Montrose, an independent school for girls in grades 6 through 12, inspired by the teachings of the Catholic Church. Here, young women achieve academic excellence in a rich liberal arts environment by developing enduring habits of mind, heart, and character. Thanks for joining us as we explore topics that highlight the power of a Montrose education and how it affects the world around us. In these early days of the much-anticipated new year, how do we deal with everyday life as we live through such turmoil? It's an important question, especially as our current medical, racial, and political crises persist. As for any question, there are a myriad of answers. And as our emotions ride what seems to be a continuous roller coaster, being able to talk about our feelings seems like a good place to start. So for this episode, recorded before the events of this new year, we're talking with Dr. Mark Brackett, author of the New York Times bestseller, Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. One of my biggest fights for our education is that we have to have a prevention scientist perspective because the, the cost savings is great. And also like life is just better for us when we think proactively as opposed to reactively. That's Dr. Mark Brackett, research psychologist and founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. We originally spoke as part of a project about social-emotional learning, civics, and character education that was jointly led by Montrose and Boston University and funded by the Kern Family Foundation. Our discussion about the importance of social-emotional learning in schools and in our everyday lives seems ever more pertinent, so I'm glad you can join us for this fuller version of it. Mark Brackett, thanks so much for joining this conversation. Uh, first off, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, how are you feeling right now? I am feeling um, calm uh, and overwhelmed at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good combo. <laughs> uh, what what does that feel like when you have two, you know, opposing emotions, but you still have to try to make progress and go forward? Um, It's a lot of work uh, because, you know, I feel at ease being, you know, on this podcast with you. But at the same time, like I know that as soon as I'm finished, I've got like 3000 things on my plate. So I'm trying to be in the present moment and not allow the future to have power over me. Yes. Well, I will sort of echo what you're saying and tell you that I am worried audio wise because I'm always worried about audio and quarantine. I'm here with my husband and seven children and two dogs and two parakeets and God only knows what could come wow. out of the transom. I feel less so, overwhelmed already. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to start off by asking you to define for us social emotional learning itself. What is it? Well, there's a lot of definitions of social emotional learning. You know, I'm on the board of Castle, the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning and we like to think of it as this process of infusing 
concepts like self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, relationship management, and responsible decision-making into the way leaders, teachers, students, support staff, families um, interact on a daily basis. And why do you think it's so important, social-emotional learning, to the development of the whole child? Well, when you think about it, you know, we're social and emotional creatures. From the moment, you know, we open our eyes, right, we seek attachment. You know, we, we need attachment in life to, to thrive. And if people like the adults who are raising and teaching us are not, you know, aware of our feelings, if they can't help to co-regulate our stress and anxiety, if they don't help us make good choices, you know, as we develop, um, life doesn't turn out, you know, as good as it could. So, you know, we see these skills as just being critical to decision-making, learning, physical and mental health, um, and even creativity and everyday performance. Mm. You said in the book that your career goal is to make social emotional learning part of the curriculum. So tell me about that. Well, you know, social emotional learning started off, you know, about 30 years ago or so. And um, it really was, you know, thought of as a program, you know, it was like you build this curriculum or this kit or program that goes into a classroom and a teacher does a lesson on empathy or a lesson on relationships or something like that. And I started my career the same way. I was blessed. I had an uncle who was a pioneer in this field who was my hero in life. And we failed horrifically. We failed because when you think about it, if it's an add-on, that means that we have to squeeze it in and that it's ancillary to the core content. And my argument is that it should be just the opposite, that social emotional learning you know, needs to be infused into the way leaders lead, teachers teach, students learn, families parent. There needs to be you know, direct instruction on the skills, for example, like how to regulate feelings, especially during these times. Like we need specific direct instruction and feedback and ongoing support to help us manage our anxiety. And if it's just an add-on, like if you had an anxiety lesson in third grade, you know, on one Wednesday, and how the heck is that going to help you manage anxiety in life? Um, The system is more complex, you know, and I think our education system needs to take these skills much more seriously. Well, one of the things that's occurred to me, you know, dealing with this global pandemic as we have and having to shift and flex so much more than we're used to, do you think that this is the right time maybe to shake things up and to, like you said, make things that haven't been built into the curriculum essential things? Is it time to get everyone's attention on this? I think it's always been time for the attention. I think when there's a crisis, you know, and you have the world being so anxious, you know, it's an opportunity Mm. to start taking this work more seriously. My concern, you know, is that, okay, you know, we're back to whatever the new normal is. And then we go back to the new normal of the way we've done education for the last hundred years. So, you know, I'm really looking for systemic change in education, that there is you know, the embedding of these principles and skills and strategies from preschool to high school. Um, As I've said before, like my goal would be for everyone to graduate high school with a black belt in emotional intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) And so give us an example of how you think 
it would look if social emotional learning were best integrating into a school setting, what might that look like? Well, it would look like school leaders being role models in faculty meetings, uh, in providing teachers with feedback, in the way schools communicate with families in the community. Um, it would look like teachers being hyper aware of how kids feel in the morning and the afternoon. It would be integrated into the way teachers design a lesson such that you know, what emotion might be best for teaching the Roman oligarchy versus the Holocaust versus, you know, getting kids to brainstorm around a project idea, you know, for their term paper. So it would be basically everyone in a school becoming an emotion scientist, as opposed to what I call an emotion judge. And it would look like kids who are feeling safe and supported and valued uh, and connected in their classrooms and that they would raise their hand if they had a fear or they were worried about something and there would not be a repercussion or um, anyone wouldn't be looking at them like, oh, why they don't, they're not smart enough or wow, they don't understand that. I understand that there must be something wrong with them. That it would just be essentially normal to be a feelings person who um, experienced the full range of emotions every day. Mm. I love your term emotion scientist uh, as a parent, because to me, it lends some objectivity to our job. And that can be very difficult to do in the realm of emotion, right? And instead of emotion judges, which I think we're often, we feel like we're almost taxed with being you know, we're referees and everything else, to be an emotion scientist demands that we take a step back. We absolutely have to be in charge, like you said, regulating, right, our own emotions as whether it's an educator or a parent before we can be an emotion scientist for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that starting with self is always critical. It is, you know, we as parents or as teachers, um, we have to be the role models. And so we don't come to this world, you know, filled with emotion, knowledge and strategies, right? We have to be taught these things. And we learn them informally and formally. Like I certainly learned a lot of unhelpful strategies from observing my parents. Um, and they had good intentions and they loved me. But, you know, my mother was very neurotic and, you know, ruminated, you know, and said things out loud, you know, about her self-esteem that were not helpful, right, for my healthy development. Yeah. And my father had a very, um, you know, tough guy kind of mindset. You know, I remember him saying things like, you know, son, you got to toughen up, right? And um, like, what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I'm still thinking about like, I'm, I'm, I have a fifth degree black belt. Am I a tough guy? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm still not, I don't see myself as a tough guy. Um, and I'm not sure why that's the ideal either. Um, but it's, but it, it's kind of like the ideal for people who don't want to deal with feeling because then you're just like, this cardboard box that doesn't, you know, uh, have to express, you know, feelings and get feedback, you know, you, your feelings have to go somewhere. So with my father, they went to, you know, yelling, screaming and aggression and with my mother, the same and also, you know, suppression, alcohol, food, you know, right. they have to go somewhere. And when we give people the permission to feel, you know, like I say, then they can go 
into productive places. Yeah. I'd love one of the things to go on what you're saying that you talked about in the book about these unexpressed feelings that the debt will be called out and the cost will be high. Exactly. Um, and you just can't deny that, you know, um, you know, you can't suppress your feelings forever. You know, they have, they, you can, I should say, but that's why people have heart attacks and that's why people get cancer. You know, when your body is, you know, filled with these toxins from, you know, having stress responses that are not dealt with, right? It takes its toll. It takes its toll. I was just trying to describe this to my teenage sons last night who literally practically came to fisticuffs over our after dinner jobs. And I said to each of them afterwards, I said, look, this isn't about the dishes, is it? This is about some pent up feelings you guys are having. And it's sort of coming out in this. And one of them said to me, oh, I just don't have the time to deal with that. I said, what if, what if your brother, you know, got hurt, fell down, broke his arm, we'd be in the ER. Do you think that would take some time? Yeah, it's funny. You know, firstly, we all, we all have a lot more time than we ever thought we had. Mm -hmm. um, the days go by like weeks and the weeks go by like days. It's very weird. Um, but what I think you're getting at is something interesting, which is that it's when things go really wrong that we want to pay attention to them. You know, when you have the heart attack, when you get the diagnosis of cancer, um, that's when people say, oh, God, I got to really pay attention to my physical health. Oh, I really got to deal with this. And one of my biggest fights for our education is that we have to have a prevention scientist perspective because the, the cost savings is great. And also, like, life is just better for us when we think proactively as opposed to reactively. Right. Like we're always talking about nipping things in the bud. Well, especially with emotions, right? Because if they roll up into a ball that's much greater than the initial emotion that we didn't deal with, we've got to untie quite a few knots to get down to the root of things. Yeah. And I think being the preventionist is also sometimes uncomfortable, right? It's effortful, you know, like it's, it's a lot more effortful to eat healthy than it is to not eat healthy. Right. It's a lot more effortful to get up in the morning and do a half hour of exercise than it is to just lie in bed and contemplate it. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're not really taught the value of putting in the effort to take care of ourselves until, you know, unfortunately, with 40% of our society being obese, you know, until we have diabetes, then we have to go on dialysis and we spend our whole lives dealing with our health. Um, when if we would have put the effort in earlier, right? We would be able to walk better and live longer. Yeah. But there's a great quote at my chiropractors about this, and it's attributed to some ancient thinker about, you know, for people who don't think they have time for fitness, they will eventually have to make time for illness. Couldn't agree. It's critically important. Yeah. Well, the quote in your book that I love that you pulled from M. Scott Peck, really sums it up as well as saying emotional sickness is avoiding reality at any cost. Emotional health is facing reality at any cost. Yep. It is. And the, um, you know, I, I think about this all the time when it comes to couples, when it comes to parents and their kids, you know, that like I gave a talk recently and a father said to me, 
you know, my God, you're so vulnerable. You talk about all your childhood abuse and being bullied and like, it's crazy, you know? Mm. And he goes, you know, I would never let my son know how bullied I was as a kid because then my son would think I was weak. Mm. And I said, well, what if your son is being bullied right now? You know, and somehow or another, your nonverbal behavior and your messaging is such that he feels uncomfortable telling you his reality. Like, how would that make you feel? Right. Um, and so, you know, I think people go through lives, through their lives in relationships where they don't tell each other how they really feel. And because they're afraid of their, you know, how the receiver, you know, is going to take it. We're just not really given the skills and strategies to, to cope or to communicate, right, about our feelings. Right. And that's why your book is so aptly titled, you know, Permission to Feel. That's what we all need, because if we're all projecting what you're talking about is essentially perfectionism, invulnerability, then that's showing an absolutely unattainable goal to our students, to our kids, as opposed to sharing our stories. Correct. And then but the sharing, you know, like you said, makes us vulnerable. Um, and, you know, it's funny, even for myself, you know, my book came out when I was 50. I am, I'm 50 now. And, um, you know, my, of course, my closest loved ones knew about my childhood abuse, but I didn't go out when I was in my 20s and 30s, you know, publicly speaking about it. I wasn't ready. And, you know, I reflect on this, how it took me until I was 50 to really tell my true story about why I do the work I do. Mm. Um, and I think, wow, like that secret, you know, that you're holding in and how destructive that is to your health and wellness. And it's all about the worry of what will people think of me? Like, Will people think that I asked for the abuse? Will people think that I'm weak because I allowed the abuse to happen? You know, it's all these stories that we make up, oftentimes based on an unfortunate reality, but yeah. sometimes they're just stories that we do make up um, that control us, right? And make us feel inhibited and fearful um, about being our authentic and true selves. Yeah. Yeah, the fear is a controlling factor and ironically facing the fear being willing to, like you said, really have the courage to share your story therein ironically lies your power. Correct. Instead of your, you know, what we think of as weakness, vulnerability is actually a sign of true strength. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I gave this talk at this conference a couple months ago and I was sharing a, more of my story and this psychologist came up to me afterwards and looked at me like a, like a basset hound, you know, might look at you, you know, and she looked like she was going to cry and she was like, can I hold your hands? And, you know, like, I'm so sorry you went through this. And it was very interesting for me because it was almost an ex like it was empathy gone bad. <laughs> you know i was like lady i don't even know who you are like why are you touching me and rubbing my hands and like <laughs> crying and like it's a little weird <laughs> um and i think this is like like it gets like it's always extremes right it's like the smothering you know or this like oh my god you know i can't believe it how have you survived 
And I'm like, you know, I'm a professor. I'm married. I, I'm doing really well. <laughs> you know, I'm just being, I'm just sharing with you that I had pain in my life and I've learned how to deal with it. Um, and I think some people don't know how to, they, they're, we're not really trained in how to talk through these things and communicate about them. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about that, you know, avoid or approach with, with emotions. And I think we are much more trained to avoid than to approach and like you said sometimes when we approach we boot it too <laughs> we, we overdo totally. it yeah because we're not you know it's sometimes it's too much about us not enough about ourselves uh, you know the self the the community and the other the first step is giving yourself and everyone that you love the permission to feel that there's no such thing as a bad emotion emotions are emotions anxiety is real if you're not anxious right now there's something wrong right there's so much uncertainty about our future like we deservedly should feel anxious but that doesn't mean that the anxiety has to have power over us right you can be a functional person with anxiety i'm i'm case i'm a case study of that i've been i've had anxiety problems my entire life and i've done just fine um i haven't tried to you know years ago i would try to erase or deny it but now I'm just like, you know what? I'm a little anxious today. It's all good. It's okay. It's, you know, I don't have to give it so much power. Right. It's okay that that's part of who you are. Totally. And do I want to be you know, anxious 80% of the day? Obviously not. But um, I also can't be happy all the time because that's weird too. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't stand people who are happy all the time. <laughs> um, and then the third is that these are real skills. You know, I call them the ruler skills in terms of our approach to social and emotional learning, which is ruler. And it's recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and regulating emotions. And these are skills that can be taught from birth, you know, and we will continuously have to develop them until our last days. You know, I thought, my goodness, you know, Mark, you're the director of the Center for Freaking Emotional Intelligence. Like, you can handle <laughs> anything. Quarantine. I have been freaking mess over the last couple of weeks <laughs> you know my mother-in-law who's from panama she's like I'm, I'm if i could walk home i would <laughs> and it's it's not because of her it's because of me um so you know this is life's work it's we cannot predict our futures so you don't know that who knew we would be living in quarantine in 2020 you know it's just like not prepared so yeah. you gotta practice the skills here and now and they're new things like living with your significant other every day 24 7 for three months that's really different for me really different so, yeah um and then i would just say you know that um we have to make this a priority right that um we can't just you know think of it as a quick fix you know an assembly you know this is about taking seriously everyone's social and emotional development and recognizing that it is inextricably linked to our cognitive development, to our social development, um, and to our success in life. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for your authenticity and your vulnerability and your passion to create what you call a, an emotion revolution. I'm with you. Awesome. Well, I need more people on my bus. You got it. <laughs> I'm even looking for, looking for drivers of the bus if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs>
I do a lot of that when I'm not in quarantine already, but All right. <laughs> I will certainly drive our bus and uh, drive it alongside you because this is great work. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Mark Brackett about his book, Permission to Feel, and the importance of social-emotional learning in schools and in our everyday lives. Please visit MontroseSchool.org and click on Montrose Podcast to access further resources about Dr. Brackett and his work. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Montrose Podcast. Please subscribe so that you'll be the first to know about future episodes and share the podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to donate to Montrose Podcast, your gift will go directly to tuition assistance, a critical part of our mission to keep a Montrose education accessible. Thank you for doing your part to plant the seeds of lifelong Montrose friendships and ensure that each Montrose graduate takes with her a life compass to navigate the challenges beyond Montrose and seize opportunities to shape our changing world. Thank you.